think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 45 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 46th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Can we introduce each other at some point? He's a Tan Renville. <laughs> yeah, there, <laughs> there we go. go. Uh, it's all our problem neatly, doesn't it? It does. Uh, so this week, uh, we're coming off the Easter Easter holiday. It's been a little bit since our last episode on Bill C-71, which is very good. You should go listen to it if you haven't already. Um, we've had a, a couple things happen. It's been it's been a little quiet. Uh, we're coming off a, a fairly busy house sitting week and into two weeks of uh, constant uh, rest and relaxation. Well, not so much because it's constant weeks and they're still working. They're just working from home. All the MPs go to the spa and squander <laughs> taxpayer money. It's all it's just literally like take helicopter rides where they just throw briefcases of taxpayer <laughs> money into the ocean. That's all it takes. Yeah, that is all it takes. Um, so the last sitting week. Uh, had some fun procedural hij- hijinks. Uh, the conservatives forced, uh, forced marathon voting for, I believe, 21 hours over budget measures that were all confidence votes. So the government basically had to keep yeah. people there the entire time. Yeah, that's what, they, that's what made it extra fun. Yeah, because if they lose one of these, then we're heading into an election. So and there's no take backs on that. So it's, uh, yeah, they had to <laughs> kind of keep a watchful eye on what was going on there. Um, yeah, so, Etienne, do you want to explain briefly what was the impetus for all this? Um, so this is still sort of the ongoing fallout from the Daniel uh, Jean saga. The Atwal affair, I believe, is the preferred one now. Per- perhaps, a re- I mean, it's more alliterative, I suppose. Perhaps the Jeanniad? I don't know. Uh, so the Atwal affair, where it's sort of the conservatives have tried to call uh, Daniel Jean to come testify at committee... This was shot down. The conservatives then tried to uh, pressure the government to have him called on, sort of on their behalf for to get the liberals to bend, to get a briefing. One, yeah. one of a couple different things that sort of changed yeah. a little bit over time. Um, the conservative senators and in the Senate, they actually right. tried to do a similar thing. Um, but the amendment got or the motion got amended with the support of the ISG to be a watered down nothing where it was calling Daniel John instead to maybe be uh, maybe present in front of uh, NSI COP, which is the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Yes, and the ISG is the independent senators group. Um, so a closed door thing that'll report through the prime minister's office. I don't know, six to 12 months from now, something along those lines. <laughs> um, so perhaps the least useful mechanism for partisan gain, but perhaps also the least useful mechanism for... Actually clearing the air on this? Actually clearing the air and sort of public interest yeah. and getting to the bottom of what really happened outside yes. of a room of a dozen people, let's say. Also, uh, we did talk about NSI COP two weeks ago in that episode, or several weeks ago, two episodes ago anyway. Uh, so you can listen to that there. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, so then this last week, um, sort of word went out early in the week that the conservatives had instructed um, their team to stay close to home, to not leave the precinct, which usually has the ramifications of forcing the liberals to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, outside of sort of these procedural hijink period, there's sort of a general... Um, understanding that, you know, people from different parties are going to be away. And so the WIPS office has a mental tally of sort of where all their MPs are, how many can be out yes. of town, how many are going to be within 30 minutes or 15 minutes from the Hill so that they can make votes in a crisis. 
Um, so when the conservatives say, well, everyone be in town, it sort of forces the liberals to tighten ranks. Yeah. And inconveniences a lot of people more so than uh, perhaps would normally be the case. Um, during the week, you saw some somewhat unusual measures. Um, <clears throat> the liberals were themselves employing some counter uh, tactics. They were uh, on orders of the day. Uh, this is not my strong suit, but they were votes to make it orders of the day or something like that to circumvent conservatives' ability ah, to I put see. in um, amendments to things and yeah, stall, stalling motions and things along those lines. Um, what was also really interesting, I think it was on Monday of last week. Um, conservatives called that the debate now be ended on what was the legislation at hand? I, oh, it was, it was on the gun bill. It was on gun bill. So yeah. it was on 71. 71 was up at second reading and the conservatives called the debate on the bill now be ended. Um, much to the surprise of Mark Strahl, uh, the conservative or the liberals voted in favor that debate be ended. And then the conservatives sort of on the spot because the liberals were voting in support <laughs> of their motion. Uh, they voted against it. Um, it passes. Debate on the gun bill ended. I think they swapped it out to uh, then become time allocation yeah. on C-68, which is a fisheries bill. Yep. And then in the next day or two after that, they went on to do time allocation on 71, which is the gun bill again. And so basically their response was to use a procedural hammer to shut down debate on the gun bill on its first day of debate. Yeah. Um, sort of as a fuck you to the conservatives. Even and though the conservatives initially had done the same thing. Oh, no, no. Sorry. That wasn't time allocation. No, they had ended debate basically saying put something else on the agenda. Right. Um, so, yeah, a, a big mess. A quick coverage of what time allocation is. Time allocation is one of two... Uh, often held alongside closure, one of two tools on the standing order that either restricts or completely limits further debate on a bill, effectively a measure to force something to come to a vote. Right. Time allocation basically says there will be so many hours left of debate. Yes. It prevents filibustering. It prevents uh, sort of the usual scheduling of bills that the opposition makes with the government. Um, generally, the opposition and government come together in some sort of agreement saying, yeah. okay, we want eight days of debate on that. That yeah. works for us. That works for you. We're yeah. good to go. And that's the House leader's job usually. Yes. Time, time allocation circumvents that and can say we there will be one further sitting day of debate on this bill only. And it pisses off the opposition. It was one of the things that every opposition party complains oh, yeah. that the government does, but I, every government does it. The liberals complained quite a bit about this uh, when they were uh, in the third uh, third party bench. So Yes, there is a certain uh, Schroedenfrud element to watch Kevin Lamoureux uh, now justify the time allocation that he so forcefully spoke against once upon a time. That guy, I gotta hand it to him, is just like the... just versatile player on the liberal <laughs> bench like he can just get out there and drain some threes on just about any topic like they will put him up on everything i think he actually like consistently for the last like i think for virtually as long as he's been in parliament he's been the person with the most speaking time um like he just garnet, garnet's coming for him yeah <laughs> garnet is coming for him but kevin lamro is like he's like that baseball player who like bats like 275 for like 17 seasons straight and just no one like he's just like he's not great but he's like dependable and he's gonna put up 
decent numbers every year, and you can count on him and I'm just, all the time. I'm just nodding my head, pretending I know what you said about baseball and how, how the numbers... Yeah, and, you know even less about baseball than I do. 12 RBIs every other month. I have no idea what's going on in baseball. <laughs> 275 is like a good, but not amazing batting average. I'll take your word for it. Um, so all of that is to say, procedural hijinks aside... Um, the conservatives, as of today, agreed to an unclassified briefing. It's been confirmed that the information that Daniel Jean shared with uh, members or members of the media was all unclassified. Which oh, okay. You, which which you of, would well, hope this is, so. They were, they were always very sketchy about this because they were saying, oh, we can't talk about it because it's classified. And then it was like, but you told a bunch of journalists. And they're like, well, yeah, because it's not classified classified. And it's like, okay, well, you got to pick one here. And like Lisa Raitt, I think, was like very effective in question period about this. So uh, I think Goodale's point, because Goodale was perhaps one of the ministers most pressed on this. Yes, to, to very def- consistently. To defend him a little bit here, I think he always tried to frame it as... It quickly becomes classified. Yeah. When you say, yeah, we have intelligence that indicates this, and you say, what's that intelligence? Then you're like, well, yeah. Then well, can, yeah. that's classified. Yeah. That said, he was, I think you're being a little too charitable. Because I don't think that's how he put it in the house. He, he was more clear cut about, ah, but this is classified. And then they would say, well, why did you tell the media? And he said, well, you know. Maybe, maybe in the house. I can't remember if it was in the house or in media interviews. But in the hundred or some instances on which he spoke on that... I'm sure that came out at least once or twice. Well, I wonder what his batting average was. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The liberals um, had talked about uh, giving Shear a briefing as he has a member of the Privy Council. Yes, you had a beef about this, I think, or some sort of... Well, let's let's actually talk about this briefly and sort of what that means because, I mean... What is the Privy? Let's so, do a little so, explaining okay. here. So the Privy you tell Council, me, what is the Privy Council? The Privy Council is historically the sort of council of hand-picked advisors of the queen or king, the, the, the monarch, uh, who would be convened, you know, sometimes to, to talk to, uh, to the monarch to give them advice. Um, I know the Scottish monarchy a lot better than the English monarchy and the we're, Norwegian we're not, monarchy, we're not, but... Shut up, uh, we're not in the Scottish monarchy. <laughs> in the context of that... Let me tell that, you about the Norwegian counterpart to the Privy Council. Oh, what is that? No, no shut up, I, I don't want to know. Um, but in, the con- in, in that context, anyway, you basically had a smaller body, which was the government, so it's like these sort of officers of the crown, which is like your treasurer, chancellor, etc. Um, and then you had a... Uh, like the rest of the Privy Council should meet from time to time. Then you had the Parliament as well. Uh, members of the Parliament were not necessarily members of the Privy Council, and vice versa. Um, which actually is pretty similar to how that works today, in that the Privy Council is a very, very large body of people who, for some reason, ex officio, usually have been named to the Privy Council, which they retain for life. And uh, the actual Privy Council, in effect, really consists in practical terms of the government. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's that's more or less it. It's basically a ceremonial function. That's a sort of legacy of our, of so our monarchy. So I have three questions for you. You said named for life. Do everyone who becomes privy councillor, are they all named for life? I believe so, but the way you're phrasing this question <laughs> leads me to believe that no. Uh, I'm sort of hesitant. I'd have to double check, but I do believe the speaker does not remain a privy councillor for life. 
Okay. Um, that's that makes only... a lot of sense. The speaker has a lot of like weird little fiddly protocols. Only things. during yeah. his term in that office. That makes some amount of sense. Um, which is why when people talk about Sheer being a privy counselor, Ooh. it's not because of him no, it's as a he's, speaker. No, it's because he's opposition leader. It's because he's yeah. op- opposition leader. Yeah, like M- Mulcair is a privy council member. Because he was yeah. leader of the opposition, although Jagmeet Singh is not a privy counselor because... He's not even a parliamentarian. Yes. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but also the leader of the third party does not. And leader of the okay, third party. Um, because that's not an official role, yep. per se. Yeah. Um, who else sort of becomes privy counselors in Canadian society? Judges, provincial cabinet ministers. Su- Supreme Court judges, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, provincial cabinet ministers, I believe, as well. David Johnson was recently named a member Sorry. of the privy council. Forgot, former, as, former governor's general. As a honorific. Okay. Uh, fun fact, Mike Lake is a member of the Privy Council. Oh, there was a weird reason for this, isn't there? He had to be, like, sworn in for, like... Cabinet, delibera- briefing, cabinet right? deliberations on, yeah. like, economic action plan, like, 2012 or some- something along yeah, those lines. It was a lines. weird thing, yeah. Because you, you do have to be a member of Privy Council to attend cabinet meetings, I believe. Correct. Well, in theory, they bring staff now and, like... But that said, it's still a very limited staff, usually. It's, like, so, the clerk and... It, yeah, it's more to, like actively participate as an equal yeah. around yeah. the cabinet table because I mean it's unusual for departmental officials to attend and That's brief true. or yeah. hell even uh, high paid consultants from the UK <laughs> uh, from time to time can address, I think he goes to the retreats, address cabinet about deliverology yes um, okay, so that's the the long version of who the Privy Council is. So when they say they offer it to the Privy uh, to Andrew Shears, the Privy Council, apparently there is an exemption under this. Uh, this is where my legislative knowledge is going to fail a little bit. I think it's this Security of Information Act, some, something along that those lines. It's, it's like three three words that yeah. Canadian Information Security Act or that something along those lines. Plausible. No one's going to correct it. That has a carve out for privy councillors to be shared this information. Um, which also, it, it's basically the mechanism by which um, ministers being uh, security cleared is yeah. uh, short-circuited. Yeah. Because ministers aren't cleared to levels of secret or top secret. They are yes. by a virtue of their position as minister yeah. cleared well, to get whatever information And this they is received. an interesting thing in the UK, too. So I just, like, a hypothetical here. But, like, Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, is someone who I think the British intelligence services would really rather not have a security clearance <laughs> if, you know, they had their way. But if he ever became prime minister, they would just have to suck it up because he just has the office and that's that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just, as I'm a not... parallel. Just that, like, in terms of, like, you get it automatically rather than having to have you yourself get approved by sure i I mean i guess the more obvious one rather than this bizarre jeremy corbyn injection is uh in the trump administration indeed whether or not trump could get a conventional security clearance as a kush well kush we know couldn't yes and so the president is cleared by virtue of being the president but his counselors are not yes um, but they don't really have the same system of government, so that's why, well, yeah, I, that's yeah, why I picked the UK, because they yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is a more direct parallel. No, it's not. <laughs> um, so, all of that to say, uh, Andrew Shear has now agreed to a briefing. In a couple weeks from now or something. Um, yeah, it's take place on Wednesday, two weeks from now. Something along those lines. And it uh, will be an unclassified briefing, and he has invited 
Um, not the intern. The intern is not getting an invite. Uh, he's invited Caucus and Media to attend the briefing, so Indeed. it should be a whole dog and pony show. Indeed, and uh, I, well, I guess he'll probably want to invite some of the people who were at the original briefing, so they can, <laughs> they can compare and be like, you oh, know, it was better the first time. Yeah, so you have to, I mean, certainly there will be questions asked, but it will, it's sort of an interesting compromise, and we'll see how it goes. Man, I would love to be the public servant who has to give that briefing. Daniel Jean? Oh, is it actually going to be him? I mean, you would ex- expect that, that would it would, I, I don't know, I don't know for a fact that it will be. Um, but it would be awkward for them to boot it down the totem pole. I feel like it will be. It had to be someone present at the original briefing, you'd think. You'd, I don't know. They could just give that guy a briefing, then have him do it. If it's not Daniel Jean, it's like his number two. Yeah, one that of, one seems of, likely. Sure. Um, but it, it'll be interesting nonetheless. Um, so something to look forward to a few weeks from now. Um, what else is on the agenda today? Uh, I just want to say one more thing about that whole situation. Is it, when was the last time the Privy Council was called to assemble? Uh, no, but actually tell me, when was the last time the Privy Council was called to assemble? I think it was to give approval on the oh, marriage yeah. of Diane and Charles. Diana. Or Dan- <laughs> God, you're terrible at this. <laughs> Princess Diane. Princess Diana and Charles. And I think like seven people showed up and they walked from like Sussex to Rito Hall and like Gave the gladiator thumbs up to the marriage. Actually, it was a thumbs down. To <laughs> yeah. uh, no, my thing was that the uh, Scottish treasurer was called the thesaurer. Just, just an interesting quirk of the English language there. I don't know. How, how did that rope into our current discussion? Well, because we were talking about the Scottish Privy Council earlier. So I figured, you, you know. You were. <laughs> I was. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so before anybody yells at me and is like, actually, uh, Scotland and Great Britain are one. I'm aware of that. This is the pre-1603 kingdom. So you can just get off my, my back about that. Uh, pre-1707 union as well. So just stop. Um, so the other thing, you had a cannabis update you wanted to give us. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Let's talk... Oh, really? <laughs> the, the floor is mine? Go ahead. Um, sure, let's talk cannabis very quickly. Um, because there have been, or in the past two weeks that we haven't recorded, and there have been some sort of interesting uh, goings on. It was actually on the date we recorded our last podcast, and it happened like as our podcast was wrapping up, so we didn't have time to mention. Oh, right, yeah. It was the vote on uh, C42, or no, no, C45. C45. You spent enough time on no, no. this. <laughs> I was mixing up with second reading. I was, uh, I was about to say C42 at fifth reading. Um, C45 at second reading, and there was a, a big scramble uh, within sort of the government rep, Peter Har- Harder's office, as to whether or not the count would be close. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they pushed and they pushed and they flew in ISG senators from uh, committees across Canada. There were yeah. two that were out of town. They flew a couple of those guys in, a couple of the conservatives flew in. Um, and the vote wasn't that close. Not close. It was 44 to 28, I believe. Yeah. Which is not close at all. That sounds right. So I did a breakdown of the numbers, and only about half the liberals showed up. Um, nice. That, <laughs> this guy's really earning that paycheck. Well, I think there's like nine lib- uh, Senate liberals or something along those lines. Yeah. One was in hospital. Yeah, I, but think I think they're called independent Senate liberals now. Whatever it is. Yeah, they keep changing it. I think only... So of the, I want to say, 11? Sure. Let's, go, let's with go with 11. One's in hospital, so we won't count him, but I think only four or five actually got to the vote. A couple, As I said, really earning a, a couple would have been traveling, but they just, I guess, couldn't be bothered um, to come back. Celebrating um, early, perhaps. But so what, what it shows, and it's interesting uh, to note that the ISG was able to 
muster themselves into a coherent blob yeah um in order to pass a key piece of government legislation that said though whoever is their whip if they have one uh i don't actually know if they do have one i don't know if there's someone titled whip yeah um, because i think on principle they would perhaps Not be opposed that, yes. to that but like that um, person but they needs did to... they do have leadership that yeah. was marshalling the senators they do need to get better accounting apparently though because they they weren't close it wasn't that close. I think the final vote will be closer. Yeah. Um, that be- seems very plausible to me because be- there'll be more people there. And, and I think a lot of a lot of ISG senators took the perspective of saying, well, this isn't the final version of the bill. Let's pass it on to committee. We can amend it at committee and make it what we want. Yeah. That said, a lot of the conservative opposition to the bill, as stated by conservative senators, was not about stuff that was in the bill. It was about stuff that was in their heads. It was not exactly the finest moment of uh, the new independent Senate, which, you know, granted was because of partisan senators, but it was pretty bad. What what in particular are you referring to? Just a lot of the, the stuff they were talking about with like, they're going to sell it to kids. And then there was the Denise Batters uh, famous uh, stop sign <laughs> malfunction. Uh, that was pretty good. Yeah. So obvious... they weren't covering themselves in glory on this one. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure it was the finest hour. Um Senator Boavnu called it a piece of shit. He did call it a piece of shit. Um, Joining uh, Peter Kent on things <laughs> that have been called pieces of shit on the floor of our various legislative houses. Or not not on the floor. Boavnu was in an interview. For the record, I do not think but Peter Kent is a piece of shit. I just, with, I'm just quoting the Prime Minister. Within, <laughs> within the hollowed halls of Parliament. Um, and so, take that as you will. Um, the bill is now getting properly studied at committee. Yeah, so hopefully they'll find out uh, that in fact, it does not resemble the Hockey Canada logo. It's actually made to look like a stop sign. Um, so the four committees are taking a look at it and are due to report on May 1st to the Social Affairs Committee. And then the Social Affairs Committee has... It'll probably work out to be two weeks for themselves to compose a final report, vote whatever amendments, and get it back to the uh, um, floor of the Senate. Yeah. Um, there's a Hill Times piece today that was uh, interesting talking about how... There's some degree of lobby inter-senator lobbying occurring um, because the all the amendments that are going to be presented from the four committees have to flow up to Social Affairs Committee, yeah. and they're going to have to find people who want to present their amendments that yeah. were recommended in their reports. Yeah. So you need to find a friend who's going to present your amendment and other friends who will pass your amendment for you on another committee that you're typically unaffiliated with. Interesting. Um, so... This is sort of unusual in yeah, the well, day-to-day passage of legislation in the, the Senate. The Senate in general right now is kind of, tri- like, it's it's breaking new ground in a lot of ways. Some good, some decidedly odd, and we'll see how they shake out. I think, um, you know, one of those things is, I think it would have been very odd had this died at second reading in the Senate. So... Or, let, or even if it gets shut down, you know, uh, on the final one. So... Like, had it died at second reading, there was a lot of people uh, ready to call the sky falling. What would have had to happen, the liberals reintroduced the legislation in the House of Commons. Yeah. They put it through all stages. Again, which was a time-consuming process well, the first time. Well, no, no. You don't have to do all. You you do it like a one week through all stages. Like it gets if, unanimously passed. It, well, not unanimously, but yeah. it gets majority voted through at every stage. I was going to say, just, like you have to have the opposition ready to play ball with you on that. No, well, maybe. I mean, because they can throw spokes in the wheel. Like, if the conservatives spokes really, in the wheel, I hope there's spokes in the wheel. If the conservatives wanted to slow things down substantially, I think they would find some way to do so. Sure, and um, we don't actually have that much legislative runway left. Like, I know the election is like next fall, 
but it's you know no that i mean there certainly isn't um there's always the lingering question of whether or not there'll be prorogation during the summer um but all of that was to say the liberals could have got the legislation back to the senate um and perhaps through the senate if the senate agreed um by the end of june which is effectively their target but it would have cost them a lot of political capital and a lot of legislative time so missing this vote would have been a a nightmare for them it would have been a huge failure yeah um but luckily i mean they passed it with relatively flying colors uh but other challenges lay ahead yeah i mean it would have been a nightmare for them but also i don't think they would have necessarily gotten the blame like, it would have been bad from a policy and, like, hey, we promised this perspective. But on the other hand, the Senate would have looked, like, very, very obstructionist. So, I, I mean, I'm not sure the Senate would have looked that obstructionist. I think uh, a lot of people who are following legislation closely would blame the conservative senators for voting against it. If the conservative senators are in their hearts opposed to the legislation, you can't fault them for voting their conscience. Well, I mean, like, you can and you can't. Like, I'm not going to get mad at them on a personal level for voting, you know, like, (laughs) the thing they believe in, but I think it speaks to, like, the Senate is still an unelected, basically unaccountable body, and this is an elected government that has, you know, a right to pursue its mandate. Sure. An explicit election promise. But with the percentage of seats that senators make up, let me ask you this hypothetical. At what point is the conservative bloc, because it will diminish over time, small enough that they should have to factor their voting into the government's marshalling of everyone else there. Do you know what I mean? So, I actually don't. I don't follow what you, what you said. So the conservatives right now represent a minority block. They're not a majority. Sure. If they right. were the majority, this would be a completely different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, On the vote, it was 28 senators, right? Yeah. With 28 senators, there was more than enough in favor to move the legislation along. At what point... Should they, as a minority block, take into account the government's grand plans as opposed to just voting their conscience? No, I just mean and like the I, government's I plans be damned. The government's responsibilities get their votes together, yeah, and, and I just don't think to marshal the independent senators in the way that they did. Yeah, so. but on the other hand, I just think that the Senate does not have the mandate to actually torpedo the elected government's election promises that were explicitly made with an explicit timeline. I just think that's not their job. So if half the ISG senators. Uh, that of, of the 44 who voted, if 22 of those hadn't shown up and mm-hmm. they were just, you know, running their uh, sun tanning business across to Ottawa, <laughs> Colin Kenny, for instance, um, what what do are the conservative senators supposed to step out of the chamber to accommodate the I government? Mean, I just think the Senate has no business torpedoing government business. Like, it's just not their job. I think they have a job to study, to add further scrutiny if they can, but it really isn't their job to shoot down government bills, especially especially on explicit election platform promises, like mandate items. Like, I think that is just so far out of the realm of what we would consider acceptable in, like, Canadian, like, constitutional precedent if for the last, like, 50, 60 years. Which is fair, but I would... I, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see who you blame there. Do you blame the Conservative senators for voting no? Where no is on paper what stopped, or do you blame the ISG senators for you know not getting up and well, I mean, go, think, going to the vote or blame, voting do, in favor? I think you do blame the conservative senators, and, and the point. ISG is a tool, or not a tool, but a, a coalition created yes. by this government. So yeah. I mean, no, I there's think, a certain irony of the child well, of the liberals, yeah. 
undermining themselves. The, the liberals the, set the themselves Frank, up. The, the monster to their Frankenstein. Li- nice. <laughs> liberals set themselves up in a very odd position where they have a chamber that they have to get their bills through. That's just the way our constitution works. But they sort of caught themselves in the bear trap of the Senate in the last parliament, decided that they were going to neatly sidestep it by declaring everyone independent. Uh, but now that's come at, like it had consequences and some of that is a loss of control over what happens in the Senate and they've had to navigate that and it's going to be increasingly interesting to see like you know journalism in five years when people are doing like vote counts of the independent senators to see who's going to vote what which way on what but in this case I think that would have been on the conservative centers to realize that it's not their place to torpedo the elected government's legislation they didn't get elected the government did in fact some of them uh tried to get elected in 2011 and were subsequently appointed after their defeats <laughs> uh which was not stephen harper's finest hour um like jean-guy dejeuner doesn't have like a leg to stand on on this um, can, like, can you hit me with some examples of legislation that the senate has previously voted down honestly no i can't think of any off the top of my head wasn't there climate change something oh, or other? Oh, yeah, you're right. This was that like Jack a, Layton. Yes, this was Jack Layton's thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the details of this well enough to discuss it intelligently, though. Um, there was that one, if I'm not mistaken. Another off-sited one is uh, abortion leg- legislation. After Morgenthaler. After Morgenthaler, yeah. yeah. The legislation the government introduced to fill the legislative void that still to this day exists. Yes. Um, that was kiboshed. That was very, very close, as I that, recall. Yeah, yeah. That was kiboshed by it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Mulroney had to appoint Point senators, senators. Okay, that's the one I was thinking. To of, yeah. avoid um, the Senate voting down GST. Yeah. Um, so I mean. Yeah. Okay. There've been a couple there, of close there calls. There are some like. Yeah. I, I don't think this will go down in the history books with any of those. That said, Jack be, was... Remember the time there was a scare on the cannabis legislation? They yeah. won by fifteen votes. And I would say even with those other items, there are some important distinctions there from this situation, where those were either a private members' bill in Jack Layton's case, uh, GST. I believe he had campaigned against. Is that correct? Something like that. Uh, I, I think that is correct. I'm not, <laughs> uh, not having been Lion Brian is, you know, has that nickname for a reason. And the Morgenthaler thing was, you know, not mandate related. It was in response to a Supreme Court case. So it's like none of those things were like explicit mandate items. So I think there is an dis- important distinction there. Like when you talk about platform pieces that were pretty critical, I think the Senate kind of has responsibility to just let it go and realize it's not their place to do this. And if they want to study it, they can study it, you know, and re- suggest amendments. But at the end of the day, I and frankly, I think our constitution is poorly designed in this way. I don't think the Senate should have an absolute veto. They should have at most a suspensive one. So much like the House of Commons in the UK or the House of Lords, sorry. Uh, if the if the Commons passes it again, it's over, like too bad. Yeah. Uh, or just something where it's like, okay, try again in three months and like, you know, something like that. I mean, but the that- fact that they basically have like a no. In practice, uh, that is effectively what happens. In practice, as, as yes. it goes back, they exchange some harshly worded letters, yeah. and then it's all over. That said, though, if they want to obstruct, they can. Like, there's nothing concretely in terms of their actual powers on paper that is stopping them from doing that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, that's that's my thought on, on the Senate. So, in uh, Justin Trudeau's Made the American Media Again, which he does from time to time, uh, and the Washington Post had a piece on sort of the fallout from uh, the India trip and sort of the last couple of weeks and concluded that uh, Canadians are becoming increasingly disenchanted with uh, our magical prime minister. And uh, that does seem to be borne out in some of the recent polling that's come out from Forum and some other places. 
we don't really want to make this a polling show, so we just want to keep this fairly high level. We'll talk about, is the honeymoon over? Natan, what do you think? Your thoughts. My thoughts? Oh, gee. I had never given any thought to this. Um, so, listen, here, here's my one big insight I will offer that I haven't seen voiced in media so far on this topic. Um, there were some people, I don't remember who, um, who remarked that Justin Trudeau's approval numbers or his polling, I can't, I think it was approvals, I think it was approval numbers, yes. are lower at this point in his tenure than they were, than Stephen Harper's were at this point yeah. in his tenure. Um, which is sort of interesting to think about. If you think about sort of, I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to think about being that I was very young when Stephen Harper um, took power, like 16 to 18 uh, age range that we're talking about here, um, that I wasn't really, really tuned in to government the way I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, makes like, plenty of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't really have like a, a strong, strong opinion of Stephen Harper at that period. Um but when you look at social media and you look at the international media, there seems to be an overwhelmingly positive sentiment for Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So it is really, and there there has been for the past two years. So it is really interesting to sort of look at that and transpose similar levels of popularity that Stephen Harper once had yeah. with where Justin Trudeau is now. And a lot of people, especially of our generation, I think, sort of forget that Stephen Harper came into office um, fighting an unpopular liberal government, promising yeah. to bring transparency and change to Ottawa. And a, there's a lot of parallels with what Justin Trudeau promised when he brought yes. in. That said, I would say that the outgoing liberal government was in some ways more deeply unpopular than his government. And also, he only won a minority even with that being the case. Fair. So um, just kind of different situation, but yeah, worth noting. No, no, absolutely. Um, so, so the point I'm getting to here is why is it that Justin Trudeau is now more unpopular than Stephen Harper was at this point in his mandate? Why has Justin Trudeau slid further than Harper did over two years? Two potential reasons. One, I would say uh, the difference between a minority, a minority and majority government. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, when, when you're in a minority government situation, your hands are tied by... Uh, your opponents and therefore you have to be more cooperative you do less you take less decisions unilaterally yeah um this prevents you from perhaps fulfilling more controversial parts of your mandate uh note that the long gun register or the long gun uh, registry wasn't abolished until 2012 yeah um, because there was no opposition support so some of these pieces needed major some sort of yeah. platform planks needed majority government status and the liberals having majority off the bat allows them to do Perhaps some of their more unpopular things. Well, I think like marijuana being one. Immediately. Cannabis. Cannabis. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm being censored by this politically correct snowflake over here. <laughs> the, the second one I'd point to, and I think this one is perhaps more important, is the role of social media in polarization. Um, that in, I mean, 2006, 2008, sort of that range was by no means... Uh, like, there, there was still social media, but it wasn't to the same extent. There wasn't Twitter. No. Like, it was the point in which people were still playing Pac-Man on their Facebook page sort of thing. 
Like, it wasn't the point. Or Farmville. Or Farmville or Bejeweled or whatever the hell you were doing on your Facebook page back then. Still answering those stupid Harry Potter quizzes. Um, A lot less so than now, where now it's, you know, um, news and media aggregator. And Twitter has become, and Twitter exists and has become a a source of hyper-polarized political discourse. Mm -hmm. And so in a situation of polarization that we have now because of social media and the echo chambers it creates i don't think it is unreasonable for people who fall out of love with politicians yeah to do that one faster and two further out of love than before and i, I would yeah i think that that's completely correct i i like i don't disagree with that assessment at all i'm just trying to think of what other factors are at play here and i, I think i want to suggest that the sort of issues are much and maybe this is because I have a poor memory of, of 2006 and 2011, but there's a much more acute culture war sort of in, I, I'd say, broadly Western politics because it, it obviously sure. is not a phenomenon uh, limited to Canada or even the U.S. It's obviously in Western Europe to a large degree as well. There's a sort of like identitarian politics of the right um, confronting an identitarian politics of the left. Um, and I think it's worth noting that it's much more tribal and much more divisive than that would have been 10 years ago and like some reasons that are good some reasons that are bad um so i don't know i think that probably has a role i think john ibbotson had a piece about how like you know justin trudeau is ignoring men which you know i think is you know i maybe don't agree with him but i can see why people think that right i think a lot of his rhetoric and like i i don't agree with this as sort of like political intuition but I think people see a lot of talk about, you know, like, oh, the feminist budget, the budget for, you know, indigenous reconciliation, and they don't see themselves reflected in that, where they used to see themselves reflected in every budget as the sort of, like, target. And as that sort of isn't the case anymore all the time, there's a resentment of that. And I think that's, if not good, then at least something I can wrap my head around why people would think that. Um so I think that's probably a factor. I think there's just a lot more tribalism. Uh, like we tie our political identities much closer to our personal ones and our sort of like cultural and um, sociological identities. So let me let me build on the Ibbotson piece a little bit. And I think there was also a Jerry Nichols piece in the Hill Times that talked about this. That talked about Trudeau um, now basically looking to pick fights. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like this gun bill? Hundred percent. Like that's I. I sincerely think that's the like gun he's bill. In on some cheap the people. values attestation yeah. of uh, summer student job grants. Yeah. There seems to now be. I'm, I'm trying to think of how much the Harper government did this. The Harper government threw a lot of red meat to its base. Yeah, but it wasn't as sort of throwing rocks at the other side as much as often. Like they did. Like they certainly did. Uh, but there wasn't this, like, persistent sort of attempt to needle, Yeah, I would say. The, the way I would sort of characterize this is the Harper government was very, very keen on sort of doing things its base liked. Yeah. Um, getting, not, rid of, getting yeah. rid of, let's use getting rid of the long gun registry as, as perhaps the best example of this, which, you know, had the effect of pissing off other people. Yeah. But what I see with a lot of what the liberal government is doing lately is trying to piss off other people yeah to win points with its base yeah um and its base is a much looser coalition and it's sort of 
a, a in in broad senses yeah. urban millennials who are wokeish. Well, and actually, I think that that's worth talking about because I think there is a dynamic here that the liberals have to contend with that the conservatives didn't. The conservatives have their base, they have their pool of voters, and it's rock hard conservatives, a small contingent of people who switch between the NDP and conservatives who are overwhelmingly rural, mostly in the prairies of northern Ontario, uh, and also in BC. And you have liberal conservative switchers who are like the suburbs of Ontario. So what they needed to do was maximize their base turnout, um, more or less ignore the blue-orange switchers because depending on where the NDP was or not, you know, once again, depending on where the NDP was, and sure. focus really, really sharply on peeling away as many of those liberal conservative switchers as possible. So their electoral math was much simpler in a sense. Whereas the liberals are really losing people in more substantial ways to both other parties. So I think what they're doing is they're trying to be very loud on social issues, especially uh, the sort of woke portfolio, if you will, uh, to try and peel off as much as the NDP as they can, because the NDP sort of voter pool and the shared voter universe of the sort of red orange switchers are people who are overwhelmingly urban much younger than the general population, much yeah. more attuned to social issues, uh, messaging and posturing, which the liberals are very good at. Where they've also tried to win with the liberal conservative switchers is not so much on social issue stuff, but on bread and butter and like, you know, increasing the Canada child benefit, promising big infrastructure spending, uh, this kind of stuff where people will respond well. In the po- and this is the middle class and those working hard to join them really is like where that's aimed rather than, you know, the, the sort of diversity appeal that they have for for the sort of red or the red orange universe so i think that they sort of have a two-track message and the loud part of it is very much for that switching pool and the or the red orange switching pool and the more bread and butter uh brass tacks part of it is much more directed towards the the red or yeah red blue switchers okay yeah i i would agree with a lot of that i think <clears throat> Um, when you say the loud part of it in the woke portfolio, to use your term, which is an absolute great term. Yeah, I just think, so, I mean, there are some things you can do, like you can increase spending here and there on sort of niche social programs. Yeah, well, and like, look at where the but, spending is too, right? It is suburban Ontario. But it is not, like, fundamentally, the, the constituents of the woke portfolio aren't looking for easy money. No. Like, like, they're not looking for $15 million here, you know, $5 million for this. No, I completely uh, agree. They're looking for messaging. They're either looking for messaging or, like, large structural change. Yeah. And so because structural change is not what the liberals have on offer. No, that has never been on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> they are instead just offering lip service. Yeah. And their lip service largely consists of poking fights with conservatives and often conservative either rural conservatives or christian conservatives yeah, well, the canada summer to, jobs to the detriment is, yeah. of some of their centrists yeah canada summer jobs thing is a really really good example of that um i don't want to get too much into it but um basically to apply for if you're an organization that wants to apply for canada summer jobs money you have to check a box on the application form that says you will con- comply with the charter including you know reproductive freedoms which some people would say is is a sort of like, you know, like a loyalty oath of some sort, like a test act that we used to have to prevent Catholics from taking office. Because I think people to... from all parties would say that. I think you, you would find people in every caucus who would say <laughs> that. Um, but 
Yeah, so, I mean, there are reasons that people can be suspicious of it, uh, and I think there are, like, very good reasons why people um, who are very concerned about reproductive freedoms for very good reasons would be concerned about any apparent backsliding on the part of, you know, the parties that are supposed to champion these things. I completely understand that. Um, but it really caught a lot of people kind of in a bind, right? Including liberals and even members of the NDP. So it was, uh, they will pick a lot of these fights because I think they're not super, super concerned about losing, you know, rural seats here and there or, uh, you know, seats where they're going to be more vulnerable on this to especially people who switch between the liberals and conservatives, especially in Atlantic Canada, where that is, you know, that is the only kind of switcher meaningfully. So I, I think they're like, you know, this will work until it doesn't. I, I think it really is like it, it will eventually in the same way that people got very, very tired of Harper's relentless trying to get to 50% plus one as just sort of the bare minimum winning coalition on things is that kind of political calculus rubs people the wrong way because every time they are left out of that coalition, they remember it, right? And it's a different set of people on different issues, but people do remember it. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think he's really meaningfully in danger of not being the prime minister after the next election. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I, I think just this is sort of tangential at this point, but I, I think it's also worth noting um, the McKenna interview uh, and how that sort of, well, we don't need to go into it, but oh. uh, uh, to how that McKenna. Catherine McKenna. Minister of the Environment and yeah. Climate Change. <laughs> yes. Just to clarify. Her interview on CTV with Evan Solomon yes. in where uh, parallels man, are rightfully being drawn to Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables comment. Ah, uh, yeah. Where she said, I don't have time to explain it to, you know, X, Y, Z. Oh, wait, no, I mean the politicians, not everyday people. I'll explain it to people, just not their representatives. Yeah, and also, and I people mean, who disagree with them. It leaves out people who criticize the liberal plan for, like, not actually meeting its targets and, like, not being ambitious enough to meaningfully, like, commit to, you know, Canada's Paris agreement. Or, yes. You know, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and any, <laughs> any cr- critics Actually of, do anything. The or even the liberal approach to climate or yeah. take take your pick, are you know Neanderthal like there there have been a lot of these slip ups yeah of sort of alienating anyone who is not a liberal yeah and it makes them look bad yeah. and it alienates people and they look mean and they look nasty and a lot of this is coming home now yeah and I think there's also like a, a you know conservatives governments as they age i feel like we've just lost all our liberalists <laughs> sorry guys no but i will say like conserv- like every government has a sort of like achilles heel as they age like conservative governments tend to get very mean um you look at this with the harper government they were they were perceived you know can you imagine a mean andrew Shear though yes what does a mean andrew well, Shear people look couldn't like? imagine a mean stephen harper in 2006 right like it's just it, it... that's not true stephen i mean stephen harper lost 2006 because of the fear oh, of a God. secret agenda yeah like that well, yeah anyway i don't know how wrong they were about that but uh, no but the I, secret agenda never manifested well itself. i mean i think it did i think people were it's pretty much what everyone sort of assumed like anyway uh but i think middle of the road incrementalist conservatism c51 I, agenda. I, I, I don't think is what people had in mind when they were thinking of the they were thinking of c51 yes yeah um usurped all our civil liberties yeah, we say this from our, our Ottawa gulag. Um, but yeah, no, so at, at any rate, I think they, they tend to me- get meaner as they age. I think it's not the only example I was going to point to. I think the Saskatchewan party government, Saskatchewan right now, has, has gotten pretty callous with a lot of cuts that were pretty poorly aimed and that kind of thing. They just sort of lose 
that side of things the sort of softer you know hands in their portfolio in their cabinets tend to leave for greener pastures after a while um i think that's kind of what happens uh liberal governments i think tend to get very greedy uh as they as they age i think already we're seeing this government put that into overdrive in some ways what, what does um, greedy mean in this context and then, like, you, like not necessarily just like corruption but just like they don't like for instance like invest in canada which i believe we talked about a couple of weeks ago no. but if not it's basically a new crown agency that the liberals have created to basically do trade commissioners jobs in promoting investment in canada and they've named as the ceo a former liberal federal liberal cabinet staffer um and former director of the Liberal Party, and then as chairman of the board, a max liberal donor every year, uh, so, who also is the chairman of Société Soleil. Which, so, okay, so, so maybe those people are very good at their jobs, and maybe they're the ideal people. But if you were a government that cared about how this looked, you would pick people who had donated to different parties to do these things. Or like half and half, or maybe one of each or something. So let's, just let, me play, let me play goal here for a minute. Sure, okay, go ahead. Okay, so without... Uh, defending the Invest in Canada as an institution, which could, I mean, the best defense of it is probably laid out in the document that recommended its creation, which is one of the three um, reports by McKinsey and Co. What's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Barton. Barton. Yeah. yeah, it's laid out in one of the three Barton reports, and he notes that uh, basically all other Western countries have a, an organization or agency doing something comparable. Um, but it's not every, every government. This is not unique to liberals. No. Every government uh, makes its patronage appointments. Absolutely. The, the, but Harper, I think it's, the Harper yes. government, God knows, had its own. They certainly did. But I would think, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, the Harper government never created a new agency to basically appoint high place conservatives to. They, they truly that's, did. That's not why they created the agency. No, though. but like it's certainly like they need to avoid the appearance of this thing. Like I think that this is a tendency like liberals get where they forget that like this stuff looks bad if you do it too often. And I think if you remember, there was the, the consul general in San Francisco that was sort of appointed as the ambassador to Silicon Valley, who was also a liberal, who was getting paid like way more than the, the post normally does. Ambassador like, to kind of, France as well. Ambassador to France. It, it just looks bad. Like, they need to, like, realize that, like, these these things are hard to explain for MPs. But, um, but no one cares about this. This is... I disagree with that. So this is why it gets by. And this is why every government ultimately ends up doing it. It's because no one cares. You're not getting calls from constituents saying, Why did you appoint... The Cirque du Soleil CEO <laughs> to invest in Canada, which the average constituent has no goddamn no. idea what it does. No, I think this is, like, it's obviously not going to be the scandal that brings down the government, but I think, like, these are things people see in a headline, they remember, and then when they see more things like this in headlines, they remember, and it's a pattern, right? It's just, it's little bit by little bit, like, it doesn't all come out at once, and it doesn't, like, have to for it to be damaging. I think it's just... It contributes to perception people have of the liberals as interested in other liberals and their well-being um, and, you know, being very, very nice to their friends. And that's what brought down the last liberal government, ultimately, is that they got a very, they got very, very, very friendly with a lot of their friends. No, that's fair. Um, I mean, don't don't mistake me playing defense here for 
Supporting yeah, the, also with McKinsey. Supporting the liberals in this. I'm sorry, McKinsey will always, 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 no matter what the government, no matter what the situation, suggest creating a sort of high-priced patronage body where they can put former McKinsey people or their friends. <laughs> like, that's McKinsey's function in the global economy. Sorry, that's that's what they do. I'm not sure that's entirely true. They're like a bullshit consultancy, just like all the other bullshit consultancies. Like, ah, you must pay us a lot of money, and then we'll, like, tweak a couple things and... You know, spray some Windex and call it a day. You would be an excellent Bay Street lawyer. Uh, slash management consultant one day. Management consultants are the real ticks on the global economy. I mean, bankers too, obviously, but like, that, yeah. That's management why, consultants are even worse. Is that why you're all in on Bitcoin? A hundred percent. Or is it Ethereum that, that's... Well, if you hear my computer chugging in the your background boat. here, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you can, it's mining as we speak, yeah. Um... Yeah, so anyway, that's that's my take on management consultants. All right, what else we got? I think that, that'll be it for the day. We're at 50 minutes. Woo! Woo! Uh, we were worried we were going to be short today. Yeah. Yeah, but no, trust us to talk about anything <laughs> for any length of time. We can do it. Uh, so that'll that'll do it for us today. Let's do a beer review real quick, though, because we actually had some, some real standouts today. Sure. So I mean, st- there's no stout, but I'll forgive you. Yeah, thank God. Uh, we started off the first half of the show with... Uh, Mash up the jam, dry hop sour from Collective Arts in Hamilton, known for its excellent can art. I always find them uh, very cheeky and fun. Uh, this was a dry hop sour, as I said, five point two percent. Super good. I have to say, one of the better dry hops I've had in a while. Um, I mean, I, if you've had a dry hop sour, you've kind of had them all. I thought the taste of this one is very, very crisp, very. Uh, you know, like a nice, clean sour. So I, w- I would disagree with you on okay. you've had one, you've had them all. Um, false. Well, the dry hop sours, I think that are sort of that kettle style. I think it's it's pretty like, it's a fairly consistent taste. It's just nuances. And I think nuances are important. But, you know, it's definitely recognizably part of the same style. Sure. But still pretty false. <laughs> um, still, still a great beer. Um, not my favorite dry hop sour. I think that goes to Bellwoods. Which one? Um, the Jelly King? Jelly King. Jelly Their King's base Jelly good. King is that is very good. Magnifique. Yeah, I really liked the Peace Order and Good Government from um, that one as well from Dominion City. Also, Lightning Field, which is very very similar. Yeah, very minor differences between the two of them. Yeah, which I believe we've both reviewed on the show. Uh, moving on to Dominion City. Yes. Uh, you picked this one up over the over the long weekend. Indeed, Neat. I had some extra time on my zip car, so we went up to Dominion City after going to Costco. There you go. Individualized transport, the devil. Yeah, just once in a while. Needless. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of need to sometimes. Now, get that bicycle out, Laurent. Get that. Yeah, I'm come back with my like gallon of. I don't think you even own seed a... oil. I do. Yeah. Do you own a bicycle? Yeah. Here. Yeah. I've never seen you on your bicycle. Do you have a helmet? I don't need it much. Do you ride with a helmet? No. God no. What am I? Oh. Putting our uh, taxpayer dollars, our, our medical well, I'm dollars. Like, d- don't worry. Medical I'm... dollars at risk. I checked every mark on my donate form, so like they're getting all like all the good stuff. That good still works. Needless... more than balance. <laughs> so needless luxury is a tipa or a triple IPA. Yeah, this, we were wondering about that. This is actually the first triple IPA I think I've ever had. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's perhaps the same as imperial IPAs, um, which are generally around this ABV. Uh, so it's 10% ABV. Um, it is a really like sweet, hazy, juicy IPA th- from what did, Dominion. What did I say when we opened it? It's like someone left a pineapple out too long, but to, in, to a, really, in a yeah. really good way. <laughs> uh, it was a collab with Bar Lupulus, which is one of the new beer bars in Ottawa. Yes. Fan- fantastic place. Would the food, recommend. The food is okay. The beer selection is really 
is really top notch. Sure. Yeah. You, you can't check all the boxes. It's the pyramid. Yeah. I mean, I love you, them for the beers. You pick two. Yeah. You can't get them all. Um, good would recommend. If you don't have it already, you've probably missed it. Um, so, that, <laughs> so that's all. There's still lots of cans left at the store. So if, you, okay. if, you can, if you're in Ottawa and you can make it out to the Dominion City Brewery in Gloucester, highly recommend. They released a new beer today. It's a, key, a key lime something or other. I am really bummed that I did not get that yesterday, but... Such as such as life. Screwed up. Yeah, it really did. All right, that's us. That'll do it for today. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Pants Pod. Uh, that'll do it. Ignore Laurent's dumb tweets. Bye.